Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. It's fantastic to see so many people here on this fantastic week for the working class. If there is one lesson, one lesson you take from this meeting, it is there is nothing on earth more powerful than the working class. That's the lesson, the power of the working class. It's a very simple lesson. You know, it's not very complicated. And we are told everywhere we go that working class people have no power, that we are weak. Even, you know, we're doing this on the uh, university campus, that working class people are dumb. Or even working class people don't exist. We hear that on university campuses. No, in fact, there's nothing more powerful than working class people and the 55,000 education workers going on a legal strike, potentially sparking off a general strike, defeating back-to-work legislation, the notwithstanding clause, and the Doug Ford government shows that fact. The potential power of the working class became actual this in the last week. The second lesson, you know, if, if, if one lesson isn't too much for you, the second lesson that you can take from this is never be pessimistic. Never be pessimistic. Never think that nothing happens. If you went back two weeks ago and said that Ontario is going to, is on the verge of a general strike. H- hand up anybody who thought two weeks ago that Ontario was three weeks away from a general strike. Hands up. Really? <laughs> well done. I, I'm not. Gonna, I'm not going to put my hand up. I'm not going to put my hand up. I did not think we were three weeks away from a general strike. Uh, although, Fight Back has written documents and articles repeatedly saying that it is potentially inherent in the situation, in the crisis of capitalist society. So am I surprised that a general strike movement could blow up in a couple of weeks? No. Am I surprised it was this couple of weeks? Yes. (laughs) Right? Or any particular couple of weeks. Because... The reality is this could have happened to any sector of the working class. That, in fact, there is a good caucus, a rank and file network of uh, Marxists, of socialists, of radicals inside the Education Workers Union, members of Fight Back, because uh, we identified this as a, as a strategic area of struggle, you know, the first workers to go up and negotiate against the Doug Ford government. So there there has been a real interest for rank and file organizing united with revolutionary socialist ideas in this union. But the reality is 
the education workers are not really any different from any other sector of the working class in Canada. I wouldn't say they're even that different for any other sector of the working class in any Western country. They just happened to be the ones that were attacked most vociferously and, and were put in a position that their leadership couldn't betray them. Because there have been many other struggles where uh, the workers you know, had 60, 70, 80, 90, 100% strike votes, but unfortunately their movement was sold out by their leaderships just before it came to a strike deadline. This it didn't happen in this situation. So it also tells you the importance of organization and importance of leadership. But there's nothing terribly special about the education workers. I love many of them, but they're, there's not, they're not a unique part of the working class. They have gone through exactly the same thing that every other working class group has gone through. So over the last decade, these workers have seen an erosion of 11% of their wages. The same as everybody else. And now with the crisis of capitalism being expressed through inflation, facing an, an acute erosion of their living standards, the same as everybody else. And, and that's the conditions for radicalization. It's actually the capitalist crisis, that this is the motor force of this movement. If capitalism was a great system, if capitalism worked for everybody, this would never have happened. The Ford government wouldn't be forced to attack these workers. In fact, the, if capitalism was a great system, there wouldn't be any inflation, there wouldn't be any austerity, the government's coffers would be full, and they could afford decent wage increases. But they can't. They're forced to attack. It's not because Doug Ford's a bad person. He is a very, very bad person. But it's not because he's a bad person. It's because he's a representative of a system in crisis. That he's forced to do this. And that's why it, it could have been, it, well, it was the education workers, but it could have been literally anybody else. In British Columbia, just a month or so ago, the government employees they went out and strike over inflation. Could have been exactly the same thing. Unfortunately, they were sold out by their leadership at the last minute. And, and the, the bad contract that they put to the members only got ratified by, what was it, 53% or something like that. 53, 54, showing the workers didn't like it one little bit. But I didn't feel like they could fight against their leadership. But... Yeah, this, this could have happened literally anywhere, and it is the system in crisis. And, and people ask you, okay, why did Doug Ford do such a provocative thing of not just back-to-work legislation, but the notwithstanding clause and a dictated contract? Yeah, that's really provocative. Actually, there's uh, sort of backroom uh, 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 leaks coming out about what happened behind closed doors, saying the government never expected defiance, never expected a legal strike, definitely didn't expect uh, a general strike. And well, there's the arrogance of the representatives of the capitalist. Although to a certain extent, you can understand their arrogance 
because every time they've tried this trick, it's worked. Pretty much the last group of workers to defy back to work was the teaching assistants at U University of British Columbia back in 2003, which I had the, the honor of representing. I was the president of that back in the day. Uh, and and there, was a, there was a defiance movement from 2003 to 2005 and a general strike movement in 2003 to 2005 in British Columbia. But, but there's really been nothing in almost 30, uh, 20 years. There's really been nothing since then. And, and we've been repeatedly told, working class people have been repeatedly told by union leaders, even people who call themselves socialists. Oh, you can't go on a legal strike. Oh, you definitely can't have a general strike. That's crazy talk. Can't have a general strike. Oh, don't you realize how long that takes to organize? It's years and years of organizing. Well, this, this one was going to be organized in a week, right? Maybe even less. And we're told that again and again and again. And the Marxists of Fight Back repeatedly said, we don't pretend it's easy. It's not easy, right? Workers, yeah, workers don't want to go on strike. Why would you go on strike? You lose wages. You have to live on picket pay. If you go on strike on half of the year, it's damn cold. And yeah, why would you want to do that? But workers are prepared to go on strike if it really matters and they feel like their leadership is behind them. All right, so it's scary. A normal strike is scary, let alone an illegal strike. But repeatedly, governments were passing back-to-work legislation. And, and it became, you know, it used to be something special. Actually, in Quebec, it's called a special law. It's really not very special anymore. It's just routine. Just routine so that the right to strike is not worth the paper it is written on. You're allowed to go on strike as long as it doesn't really hurt anybody. As long as it doesn't inconvenience anybody. What's the whole, that's the whole point of going on strike. It's if the bosses make the lives of the work, workers miserable, then the workers turn around and say, no, we're going to make the lives of the bosses miserable. That's the whole point of a strike. If it's not inconvenient, it's not a strike. That's why I call it a strike and not a tea party. Right? And that's actually a quote from my strike. <laughs> uh, but... We, we, we said repeatedly, all right, it's not easy. It's not easy to go on a legal strike. It's not easy to organize a general strike. But until somebody is prepared to defy back-to-work legislation, then the right to strike is not worth the paper it's written on. And someone somewhere has got to have the guts to stand up. Somebody somewhere. And we reminded everybody, how did unions come about? How did unions come about? Well, if you do a little bit of reading to a little bit of labor history, they don't teach this in school. They should teach this in school. How did unions come about? Well, if you go back to the 19th century, if you joined a union, you were imprisoned for joining a conspiracy to raise wages. Not only strikes were illegal, being even a union member was illegal. In Britain, they sent people off to Australia, Van Diemen's Land, right, in the 19th century for organizing unions. Same in Canada. 
So they imprison people, you know, uh, beat them up, everything. And it's only by defying unjust laws were the rights to form unions uh, won. And then workers gained a certain amount of rights, better conditions, representation, etc., etc. Right, and not and not just wages, and not just things, economic things like pensions, but health and safety. Right, and, and we've seen that in the co in the COVID pandemic, how the capitalists see the working class as merely sort of raw material for exploitation, and doesn't care about how how many of us get sick, how and how many working class people die, because they just want to make profits out of us. But it was 100 times worse 100, 200 years ago before workers had unions. So this, you know, this is how the labor movement came about. And until these traditions were re-won, then every, everything that had been won be taken away. Because they could, or the bosses could always sit back and just wait for the government to legislate. Absolutely no incentive to bargain. But why was Ford so belligerent? Why did he use the notwithstanding clause? Why did he violate the charter rights of, the, of these workers to, to go on strike? And, uh, and because, yes, uh, the courts, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled in 2015 that the right to strike was a component part of freedom of association. Well, why did he do that? Well, he's also stuck. The government is stuck. Everybody has said that the negotiations with these school board workers provide a model for the rest of the public sector. And it's true, they do. They absolutely do. So if the school workers win, all workers win. If the school workers lose, all workers are in a more difficult position. So we've got to help the school workers win. And I'd add that to student, you know, if school workers win, also students win. And the general movement to aid working class people and young people and oppressed people wins. Now, an injury to one is an injury to all. A victory for one is a victory for all. Right? But Ford couldn't just do what, he no what right wing governments normally do, is back to work legislation and binding arbitration. And there's a couple of reasons behind this. On the one side is the Supreme Court ruling that, all right, legislates them back, but then it goes to the courts in however many years, and, uh, and then the government loses. That could be hundreds of millions of dollars, even, more, even billions of dollars, potentially. So he didn't want to risk that. And there's another side of it. Okay, send it to binding arbitration. Well, binding arbitration, okay, let's say it comes up with a, a bad deal for the workers, then, well, what's the rest of the, the workers going to say? Well, I'm going to sign up for binding arbitration. I'm not agree to that. I'm going to get a bad deal. I saw what the school board got. <coughs> or let's say it came up with a good deal for the workers in binding arbitration. Unlikely, but it's possible well, then the government wouldn't be able to afford that. So again, the crisis of the system forced the Ford government down this road. 
They forced the government down this road to take such belligerent action. And the inaction of the Labour leadership made them arrogant and overconfident that they could get away with it. And in fact, the right has been using the back to, back to work and notwithstanding more and more. Like Ford was actually, yes, he's used it once and threatened it another time. And it's become normalized amongst the right, right-wing governments. You know, who cares about the constitution? Who cares about human rights? Just uh, run roughshod over it. It's been utterly normalized. And that itself is a symptom of the instability of the system. The normalization of the notwithstanding clause of the violation of constitutional rights is an erosion of this view that we live in a nice, peaceful, democratic country. Canada, so nice and peaceful. Uh, that's the international uh, sort of propaganda of what Canada is. You know, <laughs> let's not talk about what's been done to indigenous people. But that nice, peaceful, democratic tradition, you know, we all come to a compromise somewhere in the middle. Well, that's all been torn up. Uh, might is right is the, the statement of the notwithstanding clause. State power, state might is right. And if you don't like it, tough. There's no legal recourse. There's no rule of law. There's just power. Right. All right. It's just power. Well, that their power has been answered by our power now, and we won. Right? So that itself is a symptom of the crisis of the system in that, in that they can't just come to a nice gentleman's agreement somewhere in the middle. It is a zero-sum game. What the workers win, the bosses lose. What the bosses win, the workers lose. That's, that's the situation. That's the use of though a notwithstanding clause. And, and that's what forced the workers to really fight. Now, there's another side of this equation. I, talk, I talked about the crisis, the capitalism. I talked about the right-wing government uh, and the capitalists. But then there's the, the workers' side and, uh, and the workers' organizations, the union leaderships. And I say for the last 20 years, Every time back-to-work legislation is used, uh, the union leadership has bent to it and said, well, there's nothing we can do. It's illegal. Can't break the law. You know, uh, all of these excuses. We are weak. There's nothing we can do. But the, and again, there's nothing specific, particularly left-wing about uh, the QP leadership. They're not, they're not on the right of the labor movement, but you wouldn't, they're not led by socialists. And, uh, but with this very provocative action, the Ford regime did not leave the union leadership with any other recourse. Because in the past, yeah, binding arbitration and the uni unions would say, well, this is really bad, but there's nothing we can do and we'll send it to the courts. And that takes like a decade. Sometimes they win, sometimes they lose. But in effect, you've, you've, even if you win, you lose because it's 10 years fr from now. And the workers are entirely demobilized. That, that's the sort of situation with binding arbitration. But with the notwithstanding clause and with a legislated contract, there's absolutely no way there was the, that the union leadership had a face saving out. 
way out. And so they had no choice to fight. Although they did try and, and, and reach a, a compromise, which, which was a big mistake, actually. So the government, yes, put forward the back to work. Uh, the minute the workers put forward their strike notice for very reasonable wage demands, I may add, 325, approximately 11%. Yeah, the, the media, the right wing media is like, oh, 11%? Is that crazy? I'm sorry, Corporate, Corporate Canada, their profits in 20, uh, in last year, in 2021, went up by, was it 109%? 109%. CEOs, what is it, 34% increase last year in their wages? In their, in their take home, 34%. Oh, you can't ask for 11. All right, let's ask for 109. <laughs> that seems to be fair, doesn't it? No? Oh, let's be reasonable. 34 then. Right? Well, they can have it. Why the hell can't we have it? I'm sorry, we're the peasants, aren't we? We don't deserve it. Right? We're not the people who destroyed the economy. It's, it's actually the CEOs did. So they destroyed the economy. They get 34%. Sickening. Right? So anyway, 11%, 325, entirely reasonable. And all that does is compensate the workers for what they lost and allow them to keep up with inflation. So they're not even any better off. You're not better off with 325, with 11%. They're just keeping their head above water. Ford enforced 2.5%, which with inflation is 5% poorer every year on a four-year contract losing one-fifth of your take-home value over a four-year contract. So obviously, workers couldn't stomach that. That's why workers voted 96% on an 83% turnout to strike. That's incredibly high, incredibly militant, and put real pressure on those union leaders to not sell out, not, not compromise. And but in they tried to compromise. They tried to compromise. They took that 11% and, and then tried to go to the government and say, look, we'll, we'll, we'll accept six. And, and previously, they committed to open bargaining, to sort of bringing everything to the rank and file of the union. But they didn't do that. They violated the open bargaining. What did the government do? They said, no, you accept it. You take any talk of strike and protest off the table, we're not negotiating anything. There's another lesson here. Weakness invites aggression. If you capitulate, if you compromise, if you try to act reasonable, well, the bosses and their governments aren't reasonable at all. They take that as weakness and they crush it. Right? And, and if you violate workers' democracy, you mu there must be workers' democracy in, in our organizations, whether they're trade unions or student unions or any, anything like that. It must be workers' democracy because the leaders make these mistakes all the time and the rank and file could keep them under control. Say, no, 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 we don't agree with that. We need to get at least 325. Anything less than 325, anything less than 11% is a pay cut. We can't be going backwards. We refuse to choose to be poor. So leadership made that mistake, but it just rejected out of hand by the government. So they had no choice. So last, this wasn't even a week ago. So again, so this is an old quote of uh, Lenin. 
Uh, Sundays that, you know, uh, 20 years can go past as if they were a single day. And in other terms, the, the combined essence of 20 years is held in one day. And yes, last Friday, first illegal strike in, in decades uh, was abs absolutely massive, absolutely huge, incredibly inspiring. Over 10,000 on the lawn of Queen's Park, over 120 picket lines across the province, 50,000 workers, 55,000 workers on strike. All the, all the schools closed, sh again showing the power of workers. It can't run without us. These workers earning you know, $39,000, a poverty wage, many of them with two or three extra jobs. Right? Showing, they treat us like dirt, but we make everything run. Working class people make everything run. Not a light shines, not a wheel turns without the kind permission of working class people. And so that fantastic protest illegal strike on Friday, but they were thinking, oh, you know, and again, I said, fight back. We've seen a lot of sellouts. And, and sometimes we have to uh, sort of counsel our activists against being cynical. Because, yeah, I'm looking at a couple of them. Uh, uh, Council is against being cynical because you say, oh, you know, I've seen this before. It's going to be sold out again. You know, uh, don't get your hopes up. Uh, the reality is, look, you should never rule out the working class. Never rule out the working class. Have a sober understanding. Yes, the leadership is, has been terrible frequently. Uh, but at the end of the day, no bureaucracy is stronger than working class people. And yes, there was a possibility that it would be just one day of demonstration and then on the weekend of demobilization, everybody go back to work grumbling on the Monday. But you shouldn't forget there's this huge pressure by working class people. And in terms of the labor leadership, the use of notwithstanding and enforced contracts, it eradicates the need for unions. It actually eradicates their job. Because now, you know, there's no right to strike. There's no right to bargain. The government's just going to come in and say, here you go. Here you go. So uh, that concentrated the mind combined with the massive pressure for working class people. And you can bet there was some big behind the scenes arguments between right and left within the unions. But the pressure, the pressure of the workers and the realization that this potentially affected every single province in Canada. You even had Quebec unions, Quebec unions. You know, there's such a, the national divide between Quebec and English Canada. And the Quebec union said, look, if we have to come to Toronto, we'll come to Toronto. I got lots of Quebec friends and they hate coming to Toronto, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know, it's always an imposition, but the, you know, uh, it's not that bad here actually, but anyway. Um, <laughs> I've lived in a number of places in Canada, and it's not that bad. Eh? Um, things, people from outside Toronto, you don't hate Toronto, you hate Bay Street. And you know what? People who live in Toronto also hate Bay Street. Uh, you hate the capitalist class that is based here. The people of Toronto are actually great.
Uh, there, there's my plug for Toronto on the, the, the live stream. Uh, <laughs> so I did, did my, uh, yeah, not even provincialist, municipalist duty. <laughs> so, uh, where was I? Uh, but yes, even the Quebec unions were talking about uh, coming over. And actually, there's been sort of uh, report, you know, leaks about the discussions on a general strike. That it wasn't just going to be an Ontario general strike. There were actually going to be strike action outside of Ontario too. Let's talk about that. Potentially strikes in Quebec, strikes the postal workers across the country, federal, yeah, federally regulated employees, right? So there's a, a real possibility because yes, notwithstanding, could be used anywhere, and and you can tell there was those divisions within organized labor. And the pressure from the mass of the workers pushed it to a level. And to their credit, Laura Walton from uh, the school board workers and Fred Hahn from QP Ontario said that the education workers, the QP workers weren't going back uh, until the workers themselves agreed. And this was an open-ended illegal walkout. That's huge. That was a huge step. And then that created the momentum. If that, if that wasn't said, nothing else would have happened. And the government was totally firm, $4,000 a day fines, half a million a day for unions. Yeah, again, the insulting nature of this, $4,000 a day, that's 10% of the take-home pay of these workers. Utterly, utterly sickening. And, and it's real uh, economic terror against these workers, and they stood up against it. Again, nothing more powerful than working class people, but do need some organization, do need to be backed up by their, their leadership. It's, it's one thing to go on a legal strike if you're supported by your organizations. It's another thing against that leadership. But that created the momentum towards a general strike, including the public sector, including the unions who had Frank stupidly endorsed Doug Ford in the last election. And so, yes, m Monday, what was it? Three days ago, four days ago? I don't even know what day of the week it is. Um, so on Monday, there was going to be an announcement for a general strike in w with, with a one week's notice. Huge, huge, inspiring, historic. Again, we told that was impossible. But, and then we heard, oh, Ford's having his own press conference and he's, you know, scooped them. He's coming in at nine o'clock. The union's supposed to speak at 10. Ford's coming at nine. And I was, th I was thinking, okay, what's he going to say? And I thought, well, how stupid is this guy? Uh, because Ford is, you know, he's a creature, he's, he's of a type of your populist right uh, leaders, your Trumps, your Bolsonaro's, your Boris Johnson's, uh, uh, your Pierre Polyev's uh, of this world. They're, they're not known for extreme intelligence. Uh, they're, they're generally known for belligerence. And so, like, is he going to? Is he going to come with a, 
you know, canister of gasoline and pour it on the flames and threaten all of these workers with $4,000 fines and imprisonment. And is he going to do that? And, uh, and you know what? If he did, we'd be in uh, a very different situation. <laughs> I, I'm using my words carefully. Actually, I'll give you a historical analogy. Actually, have, have the, has the Fightback Club on campus had a discussion on France 68 yet? No? U of T. U of T did. Was that, was that last week or something? Or? Yeah. Okay, U of T did. I, I recommend that we do that on uh, TMU uh, soon as well. Right? Because what happened in France 68, it started off as a student strike. The police attacked the students and the workers came out in solidarity. And General de Gaulle, uh, the president, he, uh, he accused the students and the strikers of being children who messed the bed. And that led into a revolutionary general strike that could have overthrown capitalism within the space of a month in France. That, that's the shortest way I can explain 1968. It's just like I could speak about it for an hour easily. Um, so if Ford had done that, if Ford had you know, been belligerent on Monday, that would have immediately led to solidarity walkouts. Actually, the general strike might not even taken a week to materialize. It could have materialized within days. And then it wouldn't be a question of the right to strike. It wouldn't be a question of wage increases up to inflation. It would be a question of bring down the government. Bring down Ford. Actually, someone, yes, someone hold that paper up, can you? Yeah, bring down Ford, front page of fight back. Turn it around, yes. <laughs> uh, that's what, so that's what we're saying. Um, actually, our slogans, the job of Marxists is actually explain the next stage in the struggle. So uh, you know, a, a week ago, the front page of Fight Back had you know, spread the strike, made, you know, defy back to work legislation. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and then very quickly, our very, very radical slogans became fact. <laughs> and it's like, okay, what's the next slogan? And so, yes, spread the strike, make it general, bring down Ford. And, and in fact, and then spread the strike and make it general were achieved. The next task was bring down Ford, which was about a week away. <laughs> right? Uh, and that's where we'd be. But he didn't do that. He didn't do that, and we weren't in a France 1968 scenario. Instead, historically, for as far as I can tell, the first time in Canadian history, back-to-work legislation is going to be repealed. Right? Utterly historic, due to the power of the workers. And the government capitulated all the way down the line. Although it was very confusing. Ford's press conference was incredibly confusing. He was attacking QP and, and saying he was going to remove the notwithstanding, but he didn't clearly say he was going to move, move the legislation, so felt like it was a trick. But eventually the unions you know, got it in writing that was re removing the entire legislation, that the workers had the right to strike, that the government was going to come with a better deal. Huge victory. And a statement 
that working, that back to work legislation can be defeated. And, and actually, you'd see the gold bus drivers, the, you know, the suburban commuter drivers, 22, yeah, 2,200 of them are on strike right now. Usually, they'd be, they'd be legislated back already. There's no talk about that. Right? Government doesn't dare. It's been knocked back. And the government has been forced to put, put a better offer. And so the, but the condition, yes, was to bring down the picket lines. So the, the union got this deal in writing. And, and they said, we'll take it. Bring down the picket lines and accept this, this victory in terms of back to work. And, and again, fantastic partial victory. But, it, but now the struggle goes back to inflation and the wage demand. It's no longer about defeating back to work and it's no longer about bringing down the government. And, uh, and now there's negotiations between the union and uh, the government. And the government is, has been widely recognized to be in a weak position. Even right-wing commentators have said this. And the Globe and Mail has said this. Government is a weak position. Okay. But we shouldn't, we shouldn't consider this a complete victory. It's only a partial victory. The wages haven't yet been dealt with. Now, there's a debate in the movement. Should QP have taken down the lines? And, and I don't think this is the most important question of debate, but I'm going to deal with it here. That tactics really do matter. They really do matter, and it's important. So we're Marxists. We're not, well, I was about to say we're not just crazy radicals, uh, but we're not crazy radicals, actually. We objectively analyze the political situation, the, the economic and social situation, and identify which is the best way forward for workers in struggle, which doesn't always mean, you know, forward to the barricade, set it all on fire, right? It doesn't always, like, our student clubs have banners saying one solution revolution, and that's very good on campuses, it's very inspiring, but the fact is you can't have a revolution every day. And, uh, and so the question is, should they have taken down picket lines? Some people have said this is a mistake, others have even said it's a betrayal to date down the picket lines. And I'd say, look, to earn the right to leave the working class, and that's what we aim to do, because we're not playing games here. This is serious. This is a serious struggle. It's not about posturing or anything like that and pretending who's the most radical. You have to think about what are the tactics to win. Why did people go on a legal strike? Was it for 11%? No, they went on a legal strike to defeat the dictatorial legislation. That's why workers were prepared to do something really scary. $4,000 a day fines. Uh, that's why they did that, it's incredibly courageous. And uh, so they were prepared to go on a legal strike for that, prepared to go on general strike for that. 
for the right to strike and bargain. But once the government withdrew that, once the government was defeated on that question, it went back to the wage demand. Were these workers prepared to continue a legal strike, which was, would essentially be a strike to bring down the government, over a wage demand? And we've got uh, activists inside the union. We were there on Queen's Park. The overwhelming majority sentiment amongst the workers was relief. It was relief that they didn't have to stay out on a legal strike. And you have to take that into consideration. You cannot just take your own subjective wishes and impose that upon everybody. Like, did I want a legal strike? Or did I want a general strike that bring down the government? Hell yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. That'd be fantastic. But Ford didn't pour gasoline on the flames. He stepped back. And so to take, tell people to stay out on a legal strike when there's a legal avenue on the table, it's very risky. Very, very risky. And you could let the, the advanced layer of the workers get isolated from the mass. And you could turn a partial victory into the defeat. So in that situation, it's like the majority of the workers, like, they want to hear, okay, so what the government says is going to give us a better offer. Okay, let's hear what it is. And if it's terrible, go back on strike. Right? And that allows the, the advanced layer, the most class conscious and militant workers to move forward with the masses, with, with all 55,000 workers and the support of the general public. You know, so the, there's rumors that the government has proposed three and a half percent. That's insulting. That's utterly insulting. Let's say they stay at three and a half. It's easy to mobilize people back on the picket lines for a legal strike on that basis. On a very and the prospect of back to work legislation is zero, unless there's a radical shift in public opinion, which doesn't seem likely. Actually, there was incredible polls out showing that yes, yeah, seventy eight percent of uh, Ontarians thought that the workers weren't paid enough. And that, uh, was it 48% supported illegal solidarity strikes and 70% of unionized public sector workers supported solidarity strikes. That's, that's functionally a strike vault by these workers to go on strike themselves. Yes, so there's widespread sympathy against the dictatorial legislation. But you're not going to get a general strike over the, the, the wage demand. You're not going to get a general strike over the 11%. But you, but you can mobilize that sympathy and it makes it very difficult, very, very, very difficult, uh, nigh on impossible for the government to move back to work legislation again. And the workers have proved they can shut down the schools. So the workers are in a very strong position to negotiate. So in our view, it would have been risky to continue an illegal strike, which would functionally have been a strike to bring down the government when that's not Despite us putting it on the front page of Fight Back, it wasn't where the consciousness was right there and then. We put it on the front page of Fight Back because it was the next stage in the next week. <laughs> it's the next step, but conditions changed. So you have to think of the tactics.
Uh, actually, anybody hands up if you've ever studied the Russian Revolution? So about half of you. Uh, so uh, little education about the Russian Revolution. It wasn't a straight line to victory. Uh, there was revolution in February that brought down the monarchy and a revolution in October uh, that brought the workers to power. But in July, the, uh, the workers in Petrograd wanted all power to the Soviets, but the workers outside of, and the peasants outside of Petrograd did, they weren't ready for it. And, the, uh, and so the Petrograd workers tried to organize an insurrection and the Bolsheviks, the communists said, wait, 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 we've got, to, we've got to slow down a bit. We've got to win everybody else. This is a bit of a venture. This is called the July days, right? Sometimes the advanced, uh, the, the, the advanced guard can get a little bit too far away ahead of everybody else. So it's the right sentiments, full solidarity with the sentiments, but the revolutionaries have got to teach everybody tactics. You've got to, you've got to bring everybody, otherwise you get isolated and lose. So that's what we thought. So that's our uh, analysis of the actions this week. That the advance guards, but at the same time, you can't trust the union leadership. You can't trust the union leadership. There's been people, so-called socialists, who've criticized us for being critical of the union leadership, which is ridiculous. Or, or, or be, you're saying, you know, don't give these people a blank check because they sold out many times before. And, uh, and, it's, very, and it's us putting pressure on these people from the left actually helped them to do the illegal strike on Friday, the, the, the unending illegal strike and the general strike because that pressure from the left counteracts the pressure from the right. If you don't put that pressure on the left, from the left, all there is is right-wing pressure and they capitulate. So yeah, we, we, we don't trust these people because they've sold out so many times before. And so we say, look, workers must control, the workers must decide. Don't give a blank check to those uh, leaders because they've done terrible things in the past. BC Government Employees Union very recently. Uh, there have been other sellouts that people could maybe talk about in the discussion. But So don't trust them. Don't demobilize. Be and anything less than 325 is a pay cut. And be prepared to go back on the picket lines at a moment's notice. And if any bureaucrat does the old trick of saying, oh, no, no, we're weak and unpopular, what the hell are you talking about? What the hell are you talking about? Weak, unpopular, got massive support. Just defeated back-to-work legislation. There's absolutely every way to go back on the picket lines and win that 325. Right? And then, but then you've shown people, you've shown the, the layers that are a bit nervous about a legal strike. Let's, go, let's win everything we need on the basis of a legal strike and show our power in practice. And then that gets, that gets generalized to the rest of the working class, public sector and private sector. Because you know, they try to set the different sectors of the working class against each other and say, oh, why is it fair that this public sector worker has a pension and, and you at McDonald's have no pension? It's like, does a public sector worker losing their pension help a McDonald's worker get a pension? 
No, all it helps is tax cuts and corporate profiteering, right? They set worker against worker against worker. Well, in fact, victory for one is a victory for all. The victory of these unionized workers helps to organize union workers at Amazon, a union at Amazon, or anywhere else, Starbucks, et cetera, et cetera. So victory for one is a victory for all. So let's help the education workers win. Let's generalize that and demand that workers don't go backwards with inflation. We've got to demand COLA, cost of living uh, allowance, so that workers automatically get their wages topped up by whatever inflation is. Plus catch up for COLA and catch up, yeah. Uh, so catch up for any past wage restraint that workers went backwards in the past. So we've got to demand that. But don't for a minute think that capitalism will just stand for that. The capitalists won't stand for that. They'll be looking to get revenge. They'll be good looking for get, get revenge. So they're going to come back on the offensive. We also have to learn from this struggle. Yes, the first time back to work has been defeated in 20 years. That's got to become standard practice across Canada. Any back to work legislation leads to defiance and a general strike. Just automatic. Every Labour Federation has got to commit to that. Defiance, solidarity, general strike. Let's make so back-to-work legislation cannot be tabled anywhere. Let's shut it down. Let's make the province, make the country ungovernable. But this is not the end of the, the struggle. Actually, it isn't even literally the end of the struggle for the QP workers because they still have to negotiate a contract. But it's definitely not the end of the struggle for the Canadian working class. This is merely the opening salvos of a coming class war. And the capitalists aren't going to take this lying down. Ford was surprised about the defiance and he was especially surprised about the general strike and the involvement of private sector unions in that. They relied upon working class organizations being divided. Next time, they're not going to be so surprised. Next time, they're gonna come back and they're gonna prepare. You may hear from my accent, I wasn't born in this country, right? Uh, in fact, there was strikes of the miners in Britain in the 1970s that defeated the government. The, in fact, the, the miners uh, dug up coal to fuel the power stations, and there was only enough power to run the country three days a, a week. And that brought down the Conservative government in the 1970s. What happened? Capitalists planned. Margaret Thatcher waged war on the mi miners in the 1980s, 10 years later, and defeated the miners, sadly isolated and defeated the miners. So the bosses are gonna learn from this and they're gonna come back. They're gonna come back harder to defend their system, instill austerity, attack workers, and yeah, even be prepared to provoke a general strike and try to take us on, take the working class on. We've got to be prepared for those struggles. 
We've got to be prepared for those struggles. And at the end of the day, understand what is the motor force for all of this conflict. It's the crisis of capitalism. Inflation is due to the crisis of capitalism. It's not due to high wages for workers. That's laughable. Bank of Canada says that workers have got to be poorer. Actually, Bank of Canada just said today that not only workers are going to be poorer, there's going to be more higher unemployment. Right? It's like, what next is he going to come up with? Killing puppies? You know, it's like, <laughs> uh, so Bank of Canada is like for all things evil. Um, and that, but that's the logic of the capitalist system. They cannot afford better things for working class people. So the, the solution, the only solution for working class people that we're not always forced to fight, always forced on the picket line, is get rid of capitalism. We've got to get rid of capitalism. We've got to win our organizations, the unions, the student unions, everything, to a socialist perspective to get rid of capitalism. Inflation's not due to workers' wages. Workers' wages have lagged behind inflation. Inflation is due to money printing and corporate bailouts, corporate, corporate welfare, gifting money to the billionaires so they can make super profits. That's the crisis of their system, and they, and they get those profits by attacking us. So we need to get rid of their system. We need to be, build a socialist movement for a revolution. Ford compromised, and he's weakened his system because of it. But the next time, they're not going to compromise, and the struggle will get more and more radical. If anybody wanted an easy life, you picked a very bad time to be born. Right? We're living in a revolutionary epoch. Not, and, and, and Canada has entered on that road of class struggle, and frankly, class war. And, and, that's why, and that's why Fight Back exists. That's why Fight Back exists, so that we can learn the lessons of past struggles, help workers win with the best ideas and methods in the present struggles, and build that revolutionary socialist consciousness and organize in every sector of the working class and oppressed. Organize amongst the students, amongst the immigrants, indigenous people, in the trade unions, you know, building to, together the best experience of all of this these struggles. International solidarity. We've recently been active in the Iranian revolutionary movement. Uh, together with revolutionaries international, internationally, part of the international Marxist tendency. The strike wave in Britain brought, just brought down the government. Uh, there's a, uh, a unionization wave in the United States revolution in Sri Lanka. Internationally, we are merely part and parcel of that international movement against the crisis of the capitalist system. So I'd really recommend to everybody here, if you like what we've got to say, and you are inspired by the movement of working class people, maybe before this week you didn't believe it was possible. Hopefully this, this week you'll, uh, you'll be proved the power of the working class, we understand the power of the working class. The next task is to put the working class in power. That's what we fight for. I hope everyone will join us. Thank you.
Get ready for International Marxist Radio, the official podcast of the International Marxist Tendency, Marxist.com. A society which can live in harmony with nature, develop the productive forces without destroying the environment, the institutions of international capital, the markets, for example, the IMF. Capital comes to the wall, dripping blood and dirt from its every port. Hi, I'm Joe Attard, an activist with the IMT, writer for Marxist.com, and the host of a brand new podcast series, International Marxist Radio IMR. We here at Marxist.com are so excited to bring you this new show, which will offer all the best Marxist news, theory, and analysis that you've come to expect from our articles in audio form. And why are we launching this series now? Simply put, 2022 was a watershed in the history of world politics. Capitalism is in its deepest ever crisis, and the global situation was turned upside down. You have the Ukraine war, the cost of living crisis, insurrectionary movements in one country after another, from Sri Lanka to Iran... The year ended with the congressional coup against Pedro Castillo and the mass protest movement in response by workers and peasants. Simply put, the class struggle is intensifying. The crisis is accelerating. This is a podcast for revolutionaries. We need to equip you with the analysis and ideas necessary to navigate this tumultuous new period and fight to change the world. And on top of that, we know there's a hunger for Marxist theory and education. Our philosophy is the only one capable of really making sense of what's going on in the world. And we're going to be bringing you all sorts of discussion on theoretical topics from economics to history to philosophy to science and more. We already have so many amazing episodes that we can't wait to share with you. Episode 1 is going to land in January 2023, so be sure to subscribe to the podcast at your preferred streaming platform. We're available on all the big ones. And in the meantime, help us spread the word. Get on social media, share this ad, share our teaser with the hashtag IMR, and tell us what kinds of subjects you want us to cover. And above all, this podcast is the voice of the international Marxist tendency, a revolutionary Marxist organization fighting to transform society all over the world. So if you're inspired by the ideas you hear on this podcast, then get in touch via our website, marxist.com, find your local IMT section, and learn more about how you can fight to transform society, overthrow capitalism, and build socialism in our lifetimes. I'm Joe Attard, this is IMR, and we'll see you in 2023. listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the International Marxist Tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism.
However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at Marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.